please take your Bibles, if you've not already, and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. Today in our studies through Luke's Gospel, we come to the calling of another famous disciple. He's known here in uh, Luke, chapter 5, and also in Mark, chapter 2, as Levi. He's known throughout the rest of the Gospels as Matthew, Uh, and uh, we will see the calling of Matthew, or Levi, the tax collector today as the Lord draws near uh, to someone that others would not have had the time of day for. And so uh, we'll look today at Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, at Luke uh, chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse 27, and we will read through the end uh, of verse 32. You can find that on page 861 of our ESVs, Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. And before we read this word, please join me again in a word of prayer. O Lord, our God, gracious giver of all good gifts, we thank you that you are the one who calls outwardly and inwardly all those whom you are drawing to yourself. As we consider the call of Levi today, help us to remember your call upon us and to consider our calling. Not many wise, not many noble, not many uh, of high mind or uh, the acclaim of the world, and yet your people called together to you, to be your followers and disciples. We pray that you would increase that call, confirm it on our lives, and draw others into it. For the sake of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. Now Friedrich Nietzsche wrote that the Christian movement is a degeneracy movement. It is composed of reject and refuse elements of every kind. It is therefore not national, not racially conditioned, It appeals to the disinherited everywhere. It's founded on a rancor against everything well-constituted and dominant. It bears a symbol that represents a curse on the well-constituted and the dominant. Now, typical Nietzsche. He is no friend of Christianity and not afraid to make it known, but isn't it amazing the way that unbelievers often have a better handle on what Christianity is all about than the believers do? Ted Turner put it more succinctly. He said, Christianity is a religion for losers. You might not like the way that they put it, but those enemies of the cross are on to something. From its earliest days, from its very inception and even before, Christianity was never meant to be a religion for the strong, for the powerful, for the self-assured, for the ubermenches of the world. Christianity was always meant for the weak and for the struggling 
Christianity is meant for sinners who know their sinfulness and for those who have despaired of being able to right their own sinking spiritual ship. Now the problem with that is that so many Christians look so good outwardly or at least we're able to appear as though we've got it all together that we forget just how weak and needy we are. Such as our natural ignorance and our self-righteousness that we are constantly losing sight of the fact that nobody is called to be a Christian because they are worthy of Jesus Christ. Quite the contrary. It's only those feeble ones who know how much they need him who are fit to be followers of him. And the longer and the closer you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the more you will recognize that you are that wretched, that pitiable, that poor, blind, and naked one that the Lord warned the Laodiceans about. Ted Turner was right. Christianity is for losers because only those who have lost hope in saving themselves will recognize that Jesus has anything to offer them at all. And that's the message in the call of Levi. The message that Jesus' gospel is meant for sinners. It's not meant for self-reformed uh, former train wrecks. It's not meant for squeaky clean goody-goodies. Jesus said, I haven't come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners to repentance. Jesus' gospel is meant for sinners. And on his way out of Capernaum, that is exactly who Jesus meant. The text tells us in verse 27 that as Jesus was going out, he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at the tax booth. That means that while Jesus was there in Capernaum, while he was preaching the gospel, while he was cleansing the leper, while he was, he was raising up the lame, Levi was out there. He wasn't part of that throng of people crowding in to press around Jesus and to get some glimpse of him, he was out at the tax booth doing what tax collectors do. He was imposing tariffs on the fishmongers who went in and out of the city each day. He was out there charging duties and stopping merchants to expect their wares. He was making sure that they rendered unto Caesar that which was Caesar's. And by the way, he probably made sure that they rendered unto Levi a little bit of what was theirs as well. I know the text doesn't tell us explicitly that that's what he was doing, that he was cheating people, but that's simply how tax collecting worked in those days. The Romans used this system of tax collection known as tax farming. And so they took a region uh, of the country and they leased out the right to collect the taxes and the revenue in that region to the highest bidder. And if you won that bid, if you were the owner of that lease, you could go around and you could impose the tariffs basically at any extent that you wanted to. And you would do all of Rome's dirty taxational work and you'd collect just enough to lay aside a little nest egg for yourself. And so no, it doesn't say explicitly that Jesus approached the tax booth just as Levi was shaking down some honest artisan, but that's simply the way it worked. You notice later that when Jesus is accused of eating with sinners, one thing he doesn't do is disagree. Oh, no, 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 not Levi. He's not one of those. And so what you need to know about Levi is just what a thoroughly unlikable character he would have been. To everybody, everybody that passed him by on a daily basis, Levi and his tax collector companions were the lowest of the lowest of the lowest rung of Israelite society, they were right down there with the lepers. The ones who might have been better off dead in the eyes of everybody else. Now, it wasn't just because they were all presumed to be filthy, rotten scoundrels, which they were presumed 
all to be filthy, rotten scoundrels, but they were also seen as traitors. It was bad enough. Bad enough that Levi and the other tax collectors were collecting taxes, and nobody likes to pay taxes, but he had to add to the fact that he was also collecting taxes for Rome. That oppressive foreign power that had their foot on the necks of the Israelite people, squeezing the life and the independence out of the populace. And it's, it's hard for us to understand, really, in America, just how hated uh, a character Levi probably would have been. But imagine that it's 1776, and you're in Boston Harbor, and there's the man collecting taxes for England. Or better yet, imagine that it's 1935, and you're in Pyongyang, and there's a Korean man collecting taxes for Japan. Levi was a turncoat. He was probably from the tribe of Levi. His ancestors served with dignity as attendants in the temple, and now he is serving a foreign power. And from uh, this uh, smorgasbord that he hosts in his own home, it seems like he's done a fair bit of serving himself as well. Levi was a thoroughly unlikable character. The rabbis took the tax collectors and they lumped them in the same category as the robbers and the highwaymen. They were considered to be so untrustworthy that their, uh, their witness was not admissible in a court of law. Because they spent so much time with Gentiles and those who were unclean, and just because people didn't like them, they were all banned from the synagogue. And they were so completely hated that if people hadn't feared the fist of Rome, he probably would have had a bounty on his head. You can't do that, because if you do anything to the emissary or to the ambassador of Rome, the next thing you know, the centurions are in your town, and what they do is they round up the ten heads of households closest to where Levi lived, and they drag them outside of their homes, and they crucify them in the streets, and so nobody did what they wanted to do to Levi. You couldn't do that sort of thing, but when you went to the tax booth, you muttered under your breath. You saw him in the street. You spit in his direction. I know that you know all this. You've, you've read the New Testament. You know uh, how despicable tax collectors were. But the thing is that we read these texts with a sort of sanctified view that because now we're, we're 2,000 years down the road and we have recognized that even tax collectors have a place in the kingdom of God. And it's true. But we tend to convince ourselves that if we had been there, if we had known Levi, if we saw him on a daily basis, we wouldn't have treated him like that. Like the Pharisees, we would have treated him more like Jesus. But we wouldn't. You would have spit at him, and I would have grumbled at him, and we all would have ostracized him just like everybody else, because that's just what you did, because that's just what they deserved. He was a thoroughly unlikable character, and that's what's so radical about Jesus calling Levi to himself. When Jesus came up to Levi and said, I want you to come and be with me, Jesus was not doing the kind of thing that everybody breathed a sigh of relief about. Well, I'm glad finally somebody could get to him. You know, you go in and out of Cambridge, and you see the panhandlers there on the square by Alewife Station. You walk through the city, and you see the person wearing shabby clothes and asking you for a handout. And even if you don't have the time to help them, even if your window is up, even if 
you're on the other side of the street, there's that small pang of conscience, and you think, man, I wish somebody could do something. I don't know, maybe, there, maybe there's a, a shelter, maybe there's a program, maybe somebody knows how to do something better than I know how to do, and I wish somebody would help this person. But when Jesus reached out to Levi, nobody breathed a sigh of relief, except for maybe Levi's parents, if they hadn't already disowned him. Nobody said, I'm glad that finally somebody is here who deals with the hard cases. Now they stood with their eyes wide and their mouths open and they said, you want, <laughs> excuse me, you want who to be a disciple? Why? What can he possibly contribute to the building of the kingdom? Because not only was Levi a thoroughly unlikable character, but he was a highly unlike, unlikely Christian. He was the kind of person that you would have written off as beyond hope if you knew him before his conversion. And nobody but Jesus saw any potential in Levi because he didn't have any potential. It was only because Jesus was able to call him and change him and make him a follower and a disciple that he had any potential. It was only by the sovereign working of Jesus stepping into his life, even though he was such a despicable person, and that's what you need to know. The first thing we need to see in this passage is that Jesus draws near to despicable people. Jesus specializes in hard cases. Jesus calls men like Levi. He calls them to go from, from fleecing the people to following the Lord. He calls men like Saul of Tarsus to go from the bloodlust of, of persecution and imprisoning the church to becoming a foundation stone in the church. He calls men like like John Newton, to go from a life of slaving and swearing and sailing to become a preacher of the gospel and the man who wrote the song that we will close our service with today. Jesus specializes in hard cases. Jesus calls women who have suffered through unimaginable circumstances, who faced abuse and neglect and who turned to drunkenness and turned drugs just to dull it all away. He calls them out of darkness and into his glorious light and he very often makes them pillars in the church and mentors for young women who have no confidence and, and no joy or hope in their own circumstances. Jesus calls men who wasted the best years of their lives carousing and cheating and he makes them elders or missionaries or evangelists. Jesus draws near to despicable people. He calls and he converts the most unlikely Christians, not because they're full of potential, but because he's full of mercy. And so that means we can never despair of praying for sinners who appear to our vantage point to be beyond the reach of Jesus. Let us never leave off praying for those ones that seem that they have gone too far. Let us never despair of what the Lord can do because he draws near to even the most despicable of the people that we can imagine because after all, didn't he draw near to you? Let us never despair of what Christ can do. Let us never be surprised at the sinners that he calls and let us never fool ourselves into thinking that if we've been called to be a follower of Jesus, that it's because our sin was less serious because our prospects were brighter, because we had something that Christ simply couldn't live without. That's not how it works. Jesus draws near to despicable people. He calls sinners that no one would expect, and he makes them his followers. 
Now, one of the things that happens when sinners become followers is that they begin to share the joy of knowing Jesus. There is an interesting detail that we need to deal with between verses 28 and 29. Take a look in verse 28. It tells us uh, that Levi walks away from his former life, saying, it says, leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. Now, when this account is given to us by Matthew and by Mark, they don't mention what Levi walked away from. They simply say that he followed him. But Luke here, this is, this is classic Luke. This is what discipleship looks like for Luke. He left everything. Remember Simon Peter, chapter 5, verse 11. When they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Remember Luke, chapter 9, verse 61. Someone said to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those who are in my home. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is discipleship according to Luke. It looks like a walking away from a life that we knew in order to follow where Jesus leads us. It's a, a willingness to abandon all for the sake of knowing Christ. And Levi tells us, Luke tells us that Levi left everything and he followed him. And you notice this actually was even more dramatic than Peter's exit. That's the thing about fishing. You can always go back to it. Boats can always be had, fish can always be caught, the Sea of Galilee will be there waiting with open arms if ever Peter decides to come back and do a little fishing. In fact, that's where we find Peter after the resurrection, but just you try being an official of Rome and walking away from your post in the middle of duty and see if you will ever work in the tax office ever again. There is a bold yet quiet heroicism in the way that Levi's walking away from everything here. This is discipleship. He left everything and followed him. Okay, that's verse 28. Now we need to ask, what is Levi doing in verse 29? He's left everything, right? He's, he's turned over a new leaf. It's a new day with Jesus. So why is he hosting this lavish party? The word for the banquet, by the way, is only used one other time in the New Testament. It says he made a great feast in his house. It's used later. Uh, in Luke's Gospel in chapter 14, where Jesus tells a parable about another lavish banquet, and all people were invited to come in. And, and if there were spots left, go out into the hedges and the byways and gather them in. And so here's this tax collector, and he's throwing an enormous party, one that you would not have believed if you were there. And it's full of all the miscreants and the castaways and the outcasts in Israel. Well, I thought he just left everything. And anybody who knows anything about how religious reformation works will tell you that this is not how it goes. Just ask the Pharisees. These are the guys that are the experts on personal self-reformation of turning over a new leaf. Their theme verse, the theme verse for the Pharisees, was something like Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean, and the clean, that was the gospel according to the Pharisees. They were devoted to a doctrine of salvation by separation. In fact, the name for their sect, the Pharisees, comes from the Hebrew word paroshim, the separated ones. That's who they were. They were separate. Now it's possible that like the Puritans and like the Methodists, other people began to call them the separated ones. And they would have chosen a different name for themselves, but it fit, didn't it? Their entire religious life was about separating themselves from everything that they thought was unclean, from everybody they thought that wasn't 
keeping the law of God well enough. Their whole religious life revolved around a very strict observance of every single jot and tittle of the Torah and even a few jots and tittles that they added in. They were the ones, the Pharisees, who determined that the Old Testament scriptures actually contained 613 commandments, not just 10. And so in order to keep themselves from getting too close and to keep all of the rest of the people from getting too close to those 613, they began to add a whole heap of their own rules and their own traditions. The, the Pharisees were like uh, the parapet encircling the roof of Israel, keeping people from stepping too close to the edge of lawlessness and rebellion. So if the commandment said, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, well, the Pharisees said, You can't say that name at all, just, just in case, you know. And if the law said that in the temple, the priests have to wash themselves before they handle the sacrifices, and the Pharisees said, well, anytime you touch an appetizer platter, you'd better ceremonially wash yourselves beforehand. They began to add and to add. And, and one of the hallmarks that the Pharisees had was about the company that they kept. One of the ways they separated themselves from that which was unclean. So there was, there was no fraternizing with Gentiles or sinners or unclean people. Now, the thing is that just like we like to tell ourselves that if we had known Levi, we would have been kind to him, we also like to tell ourselves that if we had been alive in Israel at that time, we are the ones who would have seen through their legalistic sham, but we wouldn't. Probably not. Not without the Holy Spirit working in your heart, because you see, the Pharisees were the upstanding citizens that everyone wanted to emulate. And you knew that if you wanted to be right with the Lord, if you wanted to follow the law to a T, those Pharisees were in the right trajectory. And so when this former tax collector throws his party to celebrate the Reformation, everybody expected the theme of the party to be out with the old and in with the new. Now is a time for new alliances. What will life be like with Jesus and Jesus alone and to cast off everything that he's ever known? It's a time to change to be open to the future that, uh, that was in store for Levi. Except you recognize here that Levi has probably only been a disciple for a number of hours, maybe a few days. And he already understands something that the Pharisees have forgotten. He understands something about discipleship that too many tidy Christians seem to have forgotten. That is that disciples are called to walk away from their sin without turning their backs on fellow sinners. There is an evangelistic impulse that ought to be a part of our discipleship. There, are, there ought to be a desire to take the joy of knowing Jesus and to make it known to others who don't know him. That's part of what discipleship is. The Greek uh, in verse 28, it actually uses a continuous verb. It'd be more appropriate to translate it something like, and leaving everything he rose in, began following him. And so we move from that. He began to follow him to his very first act of discipleship is to throw wide the doors of his conversion and to say, come and see what the Lord is doing in my life. And so he invites everybody that he can. All these people who are neck deep in their own iniquity without a shovel and Jesus is there with them. And the disciples are there with them. Speaking mercy and speaking gospel to people. The rest of the world thought we're simply despicable sinners, and yet Jesus is there. Now, what a shame it is when Christians are converted. And then they begin to take all of their unbelieving friends from their former life and slowly and steadily replace them, every single last one of them, with 
nice, tidy Christian. Don't get me wrong. It is good to increase fellowship with the church. It's even better to know your limitations, to know the temptations that you are susceptible to, to listen to Paul when he said that bad morals, I'm sorry, bad company ruins good morals. But if you've come to know something of Jesus and the mercy of his death, who is there in your life who still needs to hear of that mercy? Or have you, like the Pharisees, separated yourself from anybody else who hasn't yet heard it? Where in your weekly schedule do you rub shoulders with sinners? Where do you get together with other spiritual losers and tell them about the Savior who draws near to them? Where do you have the opportunity to be like the woman at the well? John chapter 4, verses 28 and 29, the Samaritan woman, we're told, went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all I ever did. He laid me bare. He exposed the deepest sins of my heart to my greatest need. He put his finger right on him and come and see. Maybe he'll do the same thing for you. To whom do you speak the way that Philip spoke to skeptical Nathaniel? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see. Come and see. You know, we get caught up sometimes with all the chatter in the media and, and all the antagonism against Christianity, and we think we're not, we're not fit to go out there and be the ambassadors. Maybe somebody, maybe uh, some, some public intellectual Christian, he can be the one who can, can push against this new atheism and all the people that are so hostile to the gospel, and we think, I'm not equipped for that, but these people weren't yet equipped. All they did is they said, come and see. Live in close enough proximity to where I am to see what the Lord is doing in my life. And where are you doing that? This is a part of Christian discipleship. J.C. Ryle said, it may be safely asserted, there is no grace. There is no grace in the man who cares nothing about the salvation of his fellow men. But the soul that is converted will not want to go to heaven alone. Dear friends, the joy of Jesus is meant to be shared. If you've experienced the grace of the Lord and the forgiveness of your sin, don't act like contact with sinners is going to defile you. Don't act like you're somehow better than they are and you can't go back and speak to them about the grace that you've experienced. Go into the world with the confidence of Christ. Go into the world with the joy of the salvation that you've received at his sovereign hand because the gospel of Jesus is meant for sinners. That's the point. It's meant for sinners, and that's what we find. That was Jesus' point in responding to the Pharisees. Now, of course, the Pharisees weren't at Levi's party. <laughs> they wouldn't have even come if they had been invited. But they are very interested in what Jesus is doing. They want to know at all times what Jesus is up to so that they can snare him and they can make him look bad in the sight of the people. And here is the perfect opportunity because now he's eating and he's drinking. And in the Mediterranean world, eating and drinking with somebody else, that speaks of friendship, that speaks of acceptance. You see, hospitality was the currency of agreement in this day, and maybe now they've got it. And so they come, not asking Jesus, but asking the disciples, what were you doing? We heard who you were eating with. We heard who you were hanging out with. And notice the spin that they put on it. Luke tells us that there was a great company in verse 28. It was a large company. 
of tax collectors and others. And what do they say? Why do you eat, with, eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And they're just twisting the knife. We know who you're with. How dare you? And who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe uh, this is where Jesus simply stepped in to defend his disciples. Maybe the Pharisees asked a question that the disciples couldn't answer, and all of a sudden they're standing around going, what are we doing with tax collectors and sinners? That's a good question. And so Jesus steps in with his, his usual clarity. Now, I want you to imagine, and maybe, maybe far-fetched, but imagine a swanky dinner party in some fancy restaurant on Newbury Street in Boston. And the wine is poured, and the food is delicious, and you're having uh, nice, quiet chatter. And suddenly there is a crash, and glasses and silverware are tinkling everywhere. And, and somebody shouts out, is there a doctor anywhere? Well... It just so happens you're eating with the head cardiologist for Brigham and Women. I'm a doctor. Uh, what seems to be the problem? Come quick. Uh, we think he's having a heart attack. What will your doctor friend say? Oh, no, no, I, <laughs> I don't get involved with that sort of thing. I'm just sitting here having this lovely dinner with all of my very healthy friends. In fact, we all brought our most recent EKG scans, and we were congratulating one another on what perfect cardiological rhythms we all have. In fact, I don't go within arm's reach of anyone whose heart is not in tip-top shape. It's ridiculous, of course, but could you imagine what the media would do with that? That doctor would be out of a job faster than he could say triple bypass. That's not the way that it works. Doctors deal with sick people. Firefighters run into burning buildings. Jesus came to get his hands dirty with the sins of his people. That's what he's telling them. Not just to sit there surrounded by a bunch of people who are all nice and tidy and who have got their act together. That's what the gospel is all about. Jesus says, I haven't come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners to repentance. That was the point of the ministry of Jesus. That was the point of his meal with Levi. He was drawing near to despicable sinners, not so that he could join them in their sin, not for a night of wild carousing, not so that he could wake up the next morning and have regrets. Jesus drew near to despicable sinners so that he could draw them to repentance and to draw them to himself. He came close enough that the light of his glory exposed their deepest need. Expose the need of Levi, certainly. And we imagine many of the needs of the others who were uh, persona non grata in Israel. The rejects on the outskirts of society. And the only people in this situation who leave worse off than they started are the Pharisees. And they're worse off than they started because they were so busy building up their imaginary fortress against uh, sin and being separated from sin that they didn't take time to realize that Jesus came even for people like them. Recognize that sad irony in Jesus' statement. He says, I haven't come to call the righteous. Now, if anyone should have remembered the teaching of the scriptures at just that very point, it should have been the scribes who penned the scriptures for everybody else. It should have been the Pharisees who taught all the rest of the people in Israel how to be nice, upstanding, law-abiding Israelites. Shouldn't they have known the passage that we confess together today? 
God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek for God, and they've all fallen away. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Shouldn't they have recalled Isaiah? We've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Jesus says that he hasn't come to call the righteous because if he had, there would be no one to listen. There is none righteous. No, not one, Paul tells us. And when Pharisees and when Christians forget that truth, we have lost sight of the Lord who came to save the weak. We forget that the gospel is for sinners. Forget that the message of Christ has something to do with people that we pass every day and see every day on the street and in the workplace and in the mirror. The gospel is for sinners. And when we recognize that Jesus calls sinners to come to him, when we recognize that he invites them to come with empty hands, with none of their own righteousness, when we come believing that Jesus is able to supply all the forgiveness, all the perfection that our lives are lacking, well, that's a message that might just have something to do with you. It might have something to do with me. So let Ted Turner think that Christianity is for losers. Because God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. You came to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. My friend, I pray that's your boast today. That the gospel is for a sinner like you. Let's pray together. Gracious, glorious, righteous Lord, we thank you for this word of truth. We thank you for your son, our Savior. We thank you that he is the one who came down to dirty his hands with our sins so that we might be drawn to you in righteousness. We thank you that he is the one who gave his holiness in exchange for our iniquity so that we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you for the message of the gospel. Make us bearers of it. We pray that you would sink it into our own hearts and put it on our mouths so that we would spread it to all those that we come into contact with. Keep us looking to you and speaking of you And glorify yourself through your sinful people which you have redeemed. For the sake of Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. The Pharisees were scandalized that Jesus would eat and drink with sinners. Because eating and drinking with sinners was a way that you showed that you were friends with them. That you were one with them. And so it is no coincidence that we come now to a table where the Lord says, come and eat and drink with me. Not just something that you have supplied, not something that the church can supply, but through these signs and seals, eat and drink with he supplies. His righteousness for sinners. To raise up and to draw to himself people who are despicable in their sin, like all of us. This table is for you if you come acknowledging 
that you are not able to come by your own merit. This table is for you if you have cried out to the Lord to save you from your sin. If you've joined yourself to a church where his gospel is proclaimed, where his scriptures are believed. If you've not yet done that, you don't need to be a member of our congregation, but please don't accept and take these elements as they pass. This is for those who have called upon the Lord and are trusting in him and not themselves. And the Lord says that when we do that, he gives us his righteousness. He clothes us with his own goodness. He makes us his people, fit for heaven. And he will sustain us to the very end. And we will eat and drink together with him. And so we come now uh, to this table. We read the words of institution as we find them in the gospel of Mark. As they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, this is for you. If you are trusting not in yourself but in the merits of Christ, then come crying out to him for mercy. Let us join together in prayer before we come to this table and receive. O gracious Lord and God, we thank you for the truth of Christ and for his sacrifice on behalf of sinners. We pray that we now would gather close to you to eat and drink of Christ in spirit. And though uh, these elements remain uh, but bare and earthly, we pray that you would cause a spiritual change in us, cause us to look to you, to look to him where he is seated at the right hand, making intercession for the saints, or having uh, made A single sacrifice for all time, he is there. And having perfected all those who are being sanctified, we pray that you would draw our eyes to him and not to ourselves. Cause us to trust and to receive with joy and gladness the truth of this gospel for sinners. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, gathered together with his disciples, and he took bread. And after he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me.
Christ said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. same way he took the cup and he gave it to his disciples saying this cup is my blood of the new covenant it's given for many for the remission of sins take and drink all of you 